This is the Westwards podcast, a fortnightly production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. Western Sydney is located on the traditional lands of the Darug, Gunungurra and Tharawal nations, and we acknowledge and offer our respects to all Indigenous people and to their Elders past, present and emerging. Opinions and views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the Westwards organisation. If you'd like to ask questions, offer feedback or simply learn more about what we do at Westwards, please visit westwards.com.au. All right, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to today's podcast from Westwards. My name is James Roy. The date today is the 1st of December 2020 and I'm joined today by the executive director, my boss if you will, Michael Campbell. How are you Michael? I'm not too bad. Um, This is probably our penultimate um, podcast for the year. Mm. Uh, We've got a couple of exciting things for next podcast but uh, this one we've got a couple of exciting bits of news as well to share um, what sort of year have you had? Oh, it's been a long, exhausting one. I think everybody's had a long and an exhausting oh, year. God. It, you know, I, I remember it sort of started with the, the bushfires, and I think that somewhere in the middle of COVID, people kind of forgot about that and oh. the immediacy of that. But we've just been through a weekend of over 40-degree temperatures, and mm. I think suddenly sort of the smoke was in our... In our memory, if not in our eyes. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, yeah, it's lucky we've had COVID because it means that global that climate change isn't a thing anymore, right? Oh, totally not a thing. No, 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 no. no. The can, emissions have gone down. We're all, ba- we're all back to normal. We can move on. Yeah, of course. Um, so it's been a pretty massive year for, for us. I've been alongside you for most of that and it's, uh, we've sort of been moving around the place and trying to keep ourselves above water as most people have been it's been a challenging year so um you know well done to you for what you've done and uh, i think we can all be a little bit self-congratulatory with what we've done this year look i think everybody can kind of uh, breathe out a huge sigh of relief well it doesn't mean it's going to stop when the when the ball drops on new year's eve though i guess that's no. the that's the risk that we th- we sort of come to believe that it's all going to get better but I think we're cl- hopefully we're closer to the end than we are to the beginning, right? Look, I think that one of the things about change, and, you know, COVID has definitely changed our world, um, is uncertainty. We've mm. just lived through a year of complete uncertainty. And, yeah. I, and I think that that's the, the most taxing and tolling, uh, as great as toll, mm. because when we move into next year, at least we know some things. If we go back into lockdown... We've already done that once. So we know what to expect. We know the fact that if you're homeschooling, you and your kids are going to, you know, want to be not in the same universe exactly. at times. And at times you might have these brief moments of, oh, my God, this is a fantastic family. Well, just today I've done a couple of pre-records with some, um, some, uh, some writers from Melbourne who work as non-fiction writers, as freelancers and... We've sort of had a ch- one of them is a tech writer uh, and uh, Adam Turner and we we were talking uh, today about how technology has had to change and adapt and and he he says that really the technology was there it's just that it was it was waiting to be made the most of 
uh, he said all the all the, the ability we had for to do what we're doing now with podcasting and with Zoom meetings. He said the technology was there. It's just we didn't realise how useful it would be. He said if this had happened 30 years ago, we would have been in a very different space in the world right now. So no, I'm sure we would have, yes. So keep your ears out for that particular conversation. Very interesting one with Adam Turner that's going to be dropping on the other podcast channel, on the master, mini masterclass podcast channel within the next few weeks. Um, but I also think the other thing about this this past year is that we in our adap- adaptation, we've had to con- we have had to change the story. Mm. We've had to change the narrative of who we are, our relationship to ourselves, and our relationship to how we see each other in the world. Mm. And that's going to be a fundamental change that will just ripple right through you know the next decades. Well, it's been it's been interesting for us, hasn't it? Because um, you know events like our kitten club and so forth that were in person events, um, and I'm going to be honest with you, as as the organizer of that, we we're starting to go, okay, we're we're kind of getting low on people we have in the Blue Mountains, and we're needing to encourage people to come up and actually be our guest up there. And suddenly, with with uh, the ability to or the the requirement, the need to do it via uh, Zoom, suddenly. We had the option to invite a whole bunch of different people, both as audience members and as guests. So it sort of forced us to rethink a lot of stuff, as you say. Yeah, and I think that what will happen, not only for us as a writing organisation, but for performing arts, for mm. all sorts of things, I think two things will change. I think one is that we'll be delivering hybrid. Mm. We'll be deli- delivering in person and digitally, mm. both as audience members, as facilitators, as creators. That's what we will be doing. That will be the new normal. But I also think that what we'll get is that a greater understanding of the experience and and treasuring the different kinds of experience with uh, that each of the different formats actually give, and we'll mm. start to treasure that more, mm. um, and know that going out to sit in the room with somebody reading their story to you having a direct conversation where you can eyeball them, you can feel them in the room, mm. is a different experience from what, uh, listening to a mini masterclass or um, watching a something on YouTube or watching something on Netflix versus going into a theatre and watching it live. Yeah. And that differentiation will change things. Well, it's funny, you know, I was just thinking about this last night. I was watching Netflix, uh, sorry, watching, um, the, it was on the Disney Channel, in fact, the, a, uh, a live recording of ta- recording of Taylor Swift's new album Folklore, and I'm not a big Taylor Swift fan, but um, I, you know I've got some some admiration for her with the way she's approached some political stuff and so forth. But that was originally recorded um, in various places and then sort of patched together. And I remember when the, that band from the '80s, The Church, Steve Kilby, <laughs> lives in the Blue Mountains, and and when they they used to all live in separate, every one of those four members lived in on a different continent and so they would rehearse for their tours by recording on a cassette and then sending it around to each person sort of like a party line thing Um, and we used to go oh it's amazing that people can rehearse and record like well hello 2020 this is what we do now and so you know it's it's, um yeah it it is you have to look for opportunities in those things and 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 uh that sort of bring me brings me pretty neatly to uh, our quote of the day uh, which you don't know, you don't know who it is. I've got no idea. You've got no idea. Um, his name is Woody Allen, 
Oh, I've heard of him. You've heard of yeah, him? Yes. Now, there's a few things about Woody Allen that we don't, um, that we don't uh, endorse here at Westworks. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> Marrying your stepdaughter, for one. Um, but I think in the context of creativity, I think we can probably put some of that aside and just look at Woody Allen, who turns, um, oh, what is he, 85 today. 85 today. 85 today, yeah, yeah. Wow. But here's a couple of things. And, and the reason I, I brought Woody Allen up um, as a segue uh, is because he managed to come up with a movie this year as well, although it was probably recorded last year, 2019. Mm. But anyway, um, now that I think about it. But uh, what's your favourite Woody Allen movie? Because I have to say, I did some research, and, and since 1966, there have he has released... Uh, 49 movies. 49. So he made one in 66, then he made one in 67. Uh, sorry, made one in 66, and then in 67, 68, 70, 74, 76 and 81 are the only years he hasn't made a film. Really? Yeah. My God. And a couple of those years that he did make films, he made two. Right. And I don't know what your favourite is, but I, I kind of feel like for Woody Allen, you know, if you watch one and you don't like it, we'll watch the next song next year because it'll be good because he... Kind of alternates, I think. But yeah. but what what's your favourite? Well, I think um, like with anything, you, you, your introduction to somebody is is always going to sort of you know it's like your your first um, girlfriend or boyfriend, or, you know they'll always hold a, a special place. Um, but sleeper, sleeper. I remember sleeper. When that was, was that made? Oh, that's sometimes in the seventies. Yeah, right. I yeah. don't know that one. Oh, uh, set in a in a, in a future. Mm-hmm. Um, where the enduring images of it is that um, I seem to remember that he was dressed like a sperm. Right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, but but what? But That's then, a future to look forward to. Isn't it? <laughs> but what also is that um, in that sort of pivotal period of sort of you know you, the the firsts, mm. which is all, uh, a lot about being young when you do your first things. Um, he gave me two firsts. One, The Sleeper, which was that kind of comedy but was kind of a bit of social commentary into it and all, and all of that. Um, and in that sort of period you had, I remember The Chance Jimmy Blacksmith, the movie, and I remember um, Rocky Horror Picture Show mm-hmm. and, you know, it, the, these sorts of... Some of that sort of 70s surrealism was kind yeah. of like... Um Wake in Fright, which wasn't oh, so much yes. surreal, but it was it was sort of quite experimental and um, Clockwork Orange, of course. And, oh, Clockwork Orange, and yeah. Solo and all those sorts yes. of movies, yeah, yeah. Oh, Silent oh, Green was another one of those. R- yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, for, for me, I guess my first introduction to um, Woody Allen was probably... the first. I think the first one I saw was Purple Rose of Cairo. Ca- oh, Cairo, you know, yeah. where he, yeah. someone falls through the screen and then they're in the black and white movie. But then I went and started looking and I found some others that I've... I appreciated more for the. I mean, Manhattan was a yeah. wonderful film, and and um, I loved Mighty Aphrodite, but that might have mainly been because Mira Savino was in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's he's quite the um, quite the storyteller, and and he told he told a very funny story in his comedy. Um, he talks about, uh, and you'll appreciate this, Michael. He said I was walking down the street one day, and I'm not going to not going to do the impression, even though I, I could, but I won't. Thank you. <laughs> He's walking down the, the hey, they're practically married. Uh, anyway, so Thank he, you. <laughs> he was walking down the street and he said, um, and someone walked up and threw a Bible at me and it 
hit me, but hit me right above the breast pocket. But luckily I was carrying a clip of bullets in my breast pocket so the Bible didn't get me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, the, the one after that, though, was another one of these first. Oh, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. with um, Woody Allen, which was, of course, Annie Hall. Of course. Because that was such a, a pivotal uh, movie just in and of itself. It was timely. It, the type of storytelling was, was new and... Um, yeah, it was but it was also that great moment in there that comes out of nowhere where he breaks the fourth wall and he's sort yes. of in the in the queue and then this guy's talking. He just turns, looks at the camera, and goes, "Can you believe this asshole?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fantastic. Um, all right, so uh, all right, so Woody Allen, he um, he's had a lot of success and he's shown up a lot, and that'll mm-hmm. become apparent in a moment what I mean by that. Because uh, here's a couple of other really interesting statistics for you. And this is just his movies. 53 Oscar nominations and he's won 12. 53 yeah. and won 12. Mm, so that's, that's not a bad strike rate, actually. 25% strike rate on... On, on an Oscar. On Absolutely. Oscar. There's Pretty a lot of people that want them. Well, <laughs> not him, but, but they're the, that his movies have won. Yep. Uh, his movies have been nominated for 61 BAFTAs and won 17 of them. Mm. And, of course, Annie Hall that you mentioned was one of the ones that did the clean sweep because it also got... Um, he was one of the nine Golden Globes. He's one out of 47 attempts. So mm, it's not a bad strike rate, is it? That's extraordinary. Um, and so the quote of the day from Woody Allen, who's 85, is this. 80% of success is showing up. Couldn't agree more. Well, tell me why. Because a creative life mm. is about showing up. It's hard. It's hard on so many levels. It's hard on you as a person because of the, the um, you don't get a lot of money in Australia doing it. And that's a tough life to choose because you have to not do a whole bunch of other stuff. Mm. And in the face of perceived notions that the broader society doesn't value what you're doing. Or they think you're making, you're rolling in it because you're in the public eye. Yeah. Um, but I know personally, uh, household names mm. who struggle to pay the rent. And I'm not, I'm talking pre COVID mm-hmm. because, yeah. you know, they go in and out of employment. And turning up, and it's also to continue, because one of the things is I, I think that what artists do, what creative people do, is they explore beyond society's norms. Mm. They live in and work into that space. And that's a really special role. Because what it does, it interprets and reflects and pushes the boundaries, goes into the dark places Mm. so the audiences don't have to. So they can feel the echoes within themselves. They can feel the sort of the, 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 the forbidden and the taboo. But to in fact be creative, you have to know what it's actually really like beyond that. And so they do live beyond the boundaries. Mm. And again... That's tough. And well, to continue showing up, continue the exploring against, you know, and, and, and in that, it's a tough world because you're doing that in the public eye mm-hmm. and nobody is, not, nobody, everybody, we all have our tastes and dis, uh, um, likes and dislikes. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be universally loved. So well... Another quote that somebody, I can't remember who, but somebody made was, um, if you are pleasing everybody, you're not doing it right. 
Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Because you, 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 you touch, either you offend, you touch places that are dangerous places and so people want to run away from that, tear it down, pull it down, mm. whatever. So, yeah, continuing to show up is... And, but also the other thing is you've got to work on your craft yeah. and getting your craft better and better and better. And you only do that through practice. And I, I think this is interesting because we've actually had this conversation quite by coincidence in the last few weeks. Uh, we've sort of in the office we've talked about this a couple of times because you used to be a principal dancer for West Australian Ballet and so forth. Uh, yeah, and Queensland Ballet, and, Queensland Ballet. Yeah, and then Contemporary over in Germany. Yeah, and I know you made the point a couple of times when we were talking about this. You said you know that when somebody's put their hands in a pocket for one hundred and fifty dollars a ticket for to see the Sydney Ballet or whomever. They don't care whether or not you're injured or your toe's broken. They just need you to turn up because that's their expectation, right? Yep, and they have paid and they deserve your best. And they don't want to. They don't want to go. Oh, he's got a broken toe. That's a shame. They're just. He didn't dance very well tonight, did he? No, he didn't. Yeah. And you know, and they don't care if you've um, gone out to a party. You're not feeling that well. You know, you're broken up um, with your girlfriend, they mm. don't care, you, you know. Or you're just kind of feeling a bit tired that day. Yeah, yeah. Because they deserve that and you show up. They want the best and you need to deliver them your best. There's also a slightly self-serving element to this. That if you don't put put in your best, you're not going to get invited to too many more calls, are you? No. <laughs> and, and you're always judged on your last thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know. I mean, we did talk about this in the office as well, and I'm going to sound like I'm a complete fangirl for all these fairly unlikely musicians, but <laughs> the Katy Perry movie, which I think we talked about, yes. you know, that, that, yeah. that scene where Katy Perry has just been broken up by that charmless hmm. idiot who uh, goes by the name of Russell Brand, who hmm. who has just... They're married, and he's literally told her via text message that he doesn't want to be married to her anymore, and she's... In the makeup chair in some before some some huge concert in South America, and she's inconsolable as you would expect. Yeah. And and her sister, who is the uh, who's the make or the, the tour director, tour manager, comes up to her and says, "Katie, I know that you're really upset, but we've got a hundred thousand people upstairs, and they need to know what's going on. They need to know whether you're going on or whether they're going home. And whichever decision you make is okay, but you need to make it soon so we can sort of deal with this." She goes, no, just give me a minute. She pulls herself together. They do the makeup, and then there's this scene where she goes on stage. She comes up in this kind of um, like a little elevator, and she goes up with a microphone held above her head, sort of like the Statue of Liberty. Um, and she stands there, and she's physically sick. And then she looks at the uh, the stage hand, and she goes, okay, let's do this. And she puts on this big beaming smile and holds the the microphone above her head, and Bing, she's on, and the crowd roars, and she's on. Yeah. And I might not think too much of her music but I tell you what you can't fault her ability to turn up yep I remember a story where um, uh, we were touring and we uh, I was in West Australian Ballet at the time in my first or second year I think it was one of my first tours and we're in Kalgoorlie a small little theatre you know from the gold rush times oh I'm sure ballet goes great in Kalgoorlie (laughs) right (laughs) you know what this is a sidebar some of the best shows I have and best audiences I have ever had have been in regional uh, Australia. Right. And the more remote, the better, because they come on 
and they and especially the guys they they walk they're very very skeptical they you know they've been dragged along yeah, but you know there's nothing else you know really exciting so they you know and they come along and they just sit down that experience we're talking about before actually being in the room mm. They were in the room, could see the physicality, could see the, you know, what it actually took. It wasn't distanced by a screen. And they invariably, by the end of it, they go, expletive, <laughs> that was expletive, brilliant. Yeah. You know, and, and because you know when that sort of happens, where you've actually kind of taken some, somebody to a new place. I bet I, I, bet I know what some of them must have said to you. Geez, you've got some springs on you, mate. You've ever thought about playing for full forward? <laughs> Depends on which state you're in. <laughs> Absolutely right. But that, that uh, in, in Kalgoorlie, we're performing. Was, uh, it was a soldier's tale, uh, Stravinsky, um, uh, of five of us on Stravinsky's stage. huge in Kalgoorlie. Yeah, I know. Uh, one of their favourites. Yeah. But you see, they're quite often regional and um, remote Australia is so much more open. Because they don't actually have the uh, preconceptions playing on, mm-hmm. um, so or the pre- preconceptions they have are so so veneer thin that yes. once they shattered, they're shattered completely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're doing doing this, and we're getting faster and faster. And just before, uh, you know, the five of us were, you know, shot dead, not not literally. Because it's not that kind of town, uh, but it, it, um, but one of us had um, uh, eaten the prawns at the local pub, which was really not a good idea. You were wearing white lycra, though, right? It was a white costume, <laughs> oh, and so what happened was that um, he uh, um, he he was centre stage, right, and it was about two thirds of the way through. And he jumped, we're just dancing away, dancing away, dancing away. Yeah. And he just got killed. And he went down on the ground. He was facing downstage. And then he just went vomit. Right. Not just a puddle, but a a large streak went Mm. onto the stage. Um, And he just turned around and covered it up. Right. So his costume soaked up a bit of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And we just had to dance around that. He lay on the stage, continuing on until there was a sort of a moment where he could get up and dance his way off, and that's what he did. The show must go on. The show must go on. I got a broken nose uh, in a fight scene in Romeo and Juliet, and the next scene I was in was with a mask, and I had to put the mask on the broken nose. That was in the first act. Awesome. You know, but it's about showing up. Mm. It's about showing up because you do that no matter what else is going on in your life. In the face of that massive judgment, and mm. Woody Allen, you know, Woody Allen, there's a lot of judgment on his personal life. It would have been very easy for him to never make another film. I think it just sort of and retreat into himself or retreat somewhere else, you mm. know. Mm. But he keeps on showing up, doing his creativity. Well, if you do want to see Woody Allen, apparently he he and his jazz band play at the Carlisle in Manhattan every Monday evening. Oh, really? Since 1996, I think it was. Oh, how about that? So if I'm ever in New York again... <laughs> <laughs> and ever willing to kind of be in public with other people yeah, again... Uh, I'll be there yeah. and see Woody play, turn up and play his clarinet. So that's, so that's Woody Allen. Happy birthday, Woody Allen. Happy birthday. Uh, and, um, yeah, 80% of success is showing up. Some people might say it's more than 80, but I reckon 80 is a pretty good estimate and I'm happy to go with that. 
Yep. So we've got a bit of uh, exciting news. We, um, Michael, you and I and uh, and Libby from the uh, from the board, the chair of our board, and her husband and Margaret from Blacktown, Margaret Redrup May, and my daughter, and uh, the gentleman from Commonwealth Bank whose name I've Brett Perry, who's Brett our treasurer, Perry, our treasurer. We all went out to a very it was a bizarre evening, really, wasn't it? It was the Wasabi Awards. Now, Wasabi isn't the awards for fine Japanese dining. It's actually the Western Sydney Awards Awards for, for Business Excellence. Yes. And it was at Rose Hill Gardens and we got to see some horses run fast, past very fast. And uh, then we all went inside and we had two different halls mm-hmm. uh, with the announcements on one side. We were shushed by the MC on one side and then we were shushed by the MC via a video link from the other room back yep. and forth. But we were nominated for two two awards. What were they? Um, we were uh, nominated for the ComBank, Commonwealth Bank um, uh, Excellence in Arts and Culture Award. Right. And you were personally nominated for Business ex- business Leader Excellence, was it? Um, excellence ex- in Business Leading? Excellence in Big Business Leadership. In Big Business no, in, in, in business leadership. In business leadership, right, yes. right. And unfortunately, As one wouldn't tell by the amount of time uh, we're stumbling over our words. Well, you know, it's not that important because you didn't win that one. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, James. <laughs> you see, I take an issue with that. I think in a business awards, mm. they're run by um, the Western Sydney Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm. I think that um, for a not-for-profit, a, le- um, a leader of an, a not-for-profit organisation... And what's more, an arts-based not-for-profit organisation to be recognised just as one of the finalists. Mm. Oh, I absolutely agree. Regardless of what whatever job that I've done, yeah. but, f- but for that profile to be actually by the judges. Up against all those leagues, clubs and the big pharmacies and the factories and yep. well, there's something like 65,000 businesses in Western Sydney. Is that the figure? That absolutely, yeah. Yep. yeah. So congratulations to you personally for that, and I mean Thank that you. quite legitimate, quite quite um, legitimately, honest, <laughs> honestly. Uh, but the the one the the big gong, I guess, was the one that we actually won, which was the ComBank um, Arts and Culture Award. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so what does that what does that actually mean? I mean, there was no prize money attached. It was just a it was just a big tear shaped trophy that's now sitting on your desk. Um, but what does it mean for for us as an organisation? Um, first of all, what it really means is, is it's recognition of the work we do, which is wonderful. And it means that that sort of endorsement is wonderful in a number of different spheres. So let me start with the sort of the fact that it was given by the Chamber of Commerce. It means that they are willing to put and recognise and, and, and put their name to the fact that we are an organisation of excellence and what we do is worthwhile. It is recognised as being worthwhile by the business community, mm. which is an endorsement of what happens when we're talking about the creative economy. Yeah. Because the creative inco- economy actually contributes such an enormous amount to the uh, to Australia's economy, and it's not very well uh, recognised 
if uh, so not being recognised, it can't be valued mm-hmm. and valued for the contribution it does. And so then all the indirect ways, uh, so once we go off the, um, the dollar value uh, that the arts brings, um, it, uh, it, the value to community cohesion, identity, uh, soft power when we're talking internationally, mm. it's, it's all about that sort of, it brings people together because what the arts do, it, it's about the stories we tell ourselves and, each, uh, uh, and, and others. That is what we do. It interprets our existence, our passions, our beliefs, our insights, and that those narratives shape our world and they are far stronger than a balance sheet. Mm-hmm. So to, recognize, to be recognised as an organisation of excellence... But also we are a service organisation. We're not a project-based organisation. So a project-based organisation is what organisations that have outcomes. Like you go to a show, mm-hmm. you, go to a, you go sit in a theatre, you know, there's an outcome. You've rehearsed, you, uh, a script gets created, other creatives come in, the designers and everything else, and then you go and buy your ticket and then you sit down and you have a wonderful time. Then you go back to the, the people who supported you financially and you go, these are the KPIs, we had this many bums on seats over this many... Yeah. Yep. However, we are a service organisation. So we are for the writers to develop the writers to, so they can do better. We develop the audience. It's not um, so that they can go out and appreciate some of the stuff that we put on, but also go out and buy a book. Mm-hmm. Go out to a, um, a, a movie and go, wow, what a movie, because the, the writing that spawned it all was brilliant, mm-hmm. whether that be plot-driven or character-driven. You know, so we we help develop that, and we also help develop the art form as writing goes into a whole bunch of different um, digital technologies. So, for us to be endorsed like that as a service organisation, it's fantastic. It's it's a lovely endorsement. What it means in more practical terms is that when we go out and we look for partners whether they be project partners or program partners or um, uh, when we're asking for money to help support from the private sector or the public sector, we don't have to say we're brilliant. <laughs> because anybody could say, you know, I could, I could get up here and go, oh, look, I'm brilliant, you'll believe me, won't you? Yeah, of course you will, you know, because I'm, I'm telling you so. But this, is, this is an independent assessment by... An independent mm. assessment mm. Um, where... The judgment has been made not by us, and that that is an extremely validating thing because we've because it, we've uh, we've been through this year, mm-hmm. and we've been awarded that way. But it's also um, we've been doing Westwards in this particular way for just over five years. So mm. to uh, get to the, this kind of level and be recognised in, in that period of time. I've got to say that if I, if I had a dollar for every time someone the other night at that event said, oh, what a year it's been, I probably would have had a cab fare home. <laughs> <laughs> and I live in the Blue Mountains. So From it, Parramatta, it yes. Was, it, was, it was said a lot, but it's, it's actually still true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, at risk of blowing our own trumpet, um, well done us and well done you for doing oh. that. The, also, the other thing is that's important to me is that I can get up on a stage and publicly say, it's us. 
mm. like you said, it is well done us. Mm. And I can name the people mm. because that public acknowledgement is important. So it's, it's the work that James does. It's the work that uh, Christina Donahue is uh, has been was on the podcast last week. Does mm. as associate producer. It's Christian Pazalia who does our digital content. It's Kathy Elliott who does um, the uh, development work and works alongside me on that on the business. Yeah, and it's the work uh, of the board, mm-hmm. the support of the board, and it's the support of last year our seventy nine partners, and not to mention the over a hundred writers facilitating over 100 programs. Indeed. So let's um, so let's get on to that then um, because we, we're going to be running out of time very soon. But You, you say I could talk. <laughs> well, sure, yeah. Um, the, we, one of the things we do really pride ourselves on at Westwards is the publications that we, we produce in, as, as a part of, as an end result of many of our programs, our writers in residence and so forth. And um, we've, had, we've got five that we're in the middle of editing. In fact, most of them are kind of winging their way via digital, digital wings to uh, the printers right now. But um, I'm just going to go through a couple of those. We've got five, in fact, that are going to be landing any day now. So the first one is the Bidwill, um, the Bidwill Anthology. So that, what, tell, tell us a little bit about that, Michael. Bidwell Public School. Uh, it's uh, near Blacktown, if mm-hmm. you don't know where Bidwell is. Near Mount Druitt. Near Mount Druitt, mm-hmm. yep. And uh, that was a program that took place over four weeks where James actually facilitated that one. Yes, I'm asking you about it, but I actually know quite a bit. You do. Yeah. So, I'm, so what I'm doing is I'm doing the, the, the prep work so I can throw to you okay. and you can fill in the details. <laughs> Good um, And it was working with the year sixes. Yeah, and they were... They were Great kids, you know, they like most people this year. Once we get late into term four, it's challenging to keep on task sometimes, but I find, my, I find myself struggling to keep on task as well. But no, so we're going to be launching their, um, their publication called Tasty As. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be launched um, at the school in the coming weeks. Um, then they're doing a similar thing with the Ponds High School. So the Ponds is this massive high school in, uh, in the Ponds, which is out near Marsden Park. So we're going to be doing a, uh, an anthology with them. What's it called? Finding the Edge Pieces, I think, isn't it? Finding the Edge Pieces, correct. Which comes from a, a young woman who wrote a piece and she said that... It's a beautiful piece of writing, actually. She says that uh, we, I am fi- I am, uh, my life is a puzzle, but I am bit by bit finding my edge pieces, which I thought was a really... Really nice kind of little thing. But, um, Michael, maybe you'd like to read a very quick poem by Bill Vicker, who is one of the young people from the Ponds High School, and this is appearing in the uh, anthology. And the, the, all our publications will be appearing online as they get a launch, so you can actually read mm-hmm. it for yourself. So go to westwords.com.au, look for the publications link, and there they all are, so you can have a bit of a look. Hollow Man. Life. Nothing but an empty dream, a hollow series of events day passing day, until one, where we land upon our grave. Our purpose we question, yet every day. Our failures we reason, reminiscing on past success, clasping onto moments of joy, trembling to let go. Lies we acknowledge ever so low, our potential we do not see, our lies we tell ourselves to hide from the truth. We nothing but hollow men. Hollow men with hearts waiting to be filled. 
It's not a bad poem, is it, for uh, for anyone, much less much less a year ten student, you know? Oh, absolutely. It's just beautiful. It starts off with that kind of. I guess you're tempted, you're forgiven for thinking at the beginning. Oh, here we go. This is kind of bleak, and but she's got that last, last, nice little moment of hope at the end that really brings it through. Oh, absolutely. And it's that, and it's that sort of the, the hollow men with hearts waiting to be filled. Yeah, beautiful. And and what I find extraordinary is that deb- level of humanity and that depth of humanity mm. that is allowed to find its relief in writing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and all the writing from that collection is kind of stunning, isn't it? It is stunning. It absolutely is stunning. I, um, I think there's sort of, it's such a commendation to their teachers, mm. but also the fact that they, you know, this is the result of a, a significant dedication to those students. Yeah, well, it's an after-school writing time. group that yeah. they've, they've been coming to every week and it's... Um, it's really shown in the quality of, of their writing. Oh, absolutely. Um, the other and one of the other ones that we've been working on uh, is the African Australian Literature Development Program, which mm-hmm. is in conjunction with the uh, African Australian Advocacy Centre. Centre. Yes. Now they uh, the the centre actually approached us at the um, the end of last year because the centre. Uh, really did want to provide an opportunity to their constituency to help them develop their voices, to give them skills and, and importantly, confidence. So um, we're working with the Adev's Family Foundation on this one Mm -hmm. um, to provide that kind of developmental work over the course of three years. An important part of that one is the publication, the hard copy publication, because it's an amazing feeling when you see your work outside yourself as an object, like it's a book on a bookshelf, like it's a it, it, it's it's encased and somehow elevated um, along with the framing and the magnifying glass of a publication. But over the course of the year, we've been running um, uh, groups uh, working on their non-fiction, their fiction. We've had graphic novels and comics. We've been working on their, with them on their poetry and uh, also writing for children, these sort of uh, five different groups. I also had a, a guest session with Maxine Beneva-Clark, which was yes. very exciting for them. Um, yeah, so that's uh, we've, we've just pulled the trigger on that one today, haven't we? We just fired off just before you came in here to record this. You pulled the trigger on that particular... I don't know if we're allowed to reveal the name yet. No, not yet. We probably need to let the people who... Uh, which, <laughs> which name we settled on. But uh, big, big props to Chris... Chris Donahue, our um, colleague, who has done quite a bit of work on, on that one as well. And then there was the LGBTIQ plus collection, which is from a, a group that has been meeting under Westward's kind of uh, umbrella, if you like, for some time now. So their publication will be coming out as well imminently. And then there's the Merrill Prize, the Blacktown Merrill Creative Writing Prize, which is which we've talked about before, but that's... Um, younger children, middle grade children, high school age children, adults writing poetry and short stories, and that is announced when the pro- the big prize is announced this what Thursday this Thursday this Thursday, and at the same time, um, that's the first um, boxes of books we've received. Mm-hmm. So um, how do they look? Beautiful. Do they? You didn't beautiful. bring one in, did you? No, I haven't. Yet. Oh come on! I'm in the office. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, but um, one of the partnerships 
that you know uh, has led to that award mm-hmm. is that we've worked for many years now with Sadler Studio, uh, Hayley Lamb and Luke Beaton, uh, and they've de- they design our publications and they consistently do an amazing so job. Knock it out of the park every time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the mayoral prize, so that's coming. That's being announced. The book's coming out, and the prize is being announced this Thursday at the uh, in Blacktown. In Blacktown, but also uh, you, um, I think they're doing some digital uh, hookups as well. Right. So congratulations to the winners and the highly commended and the runners up, and in fact anyone who took part, because that is uh, that's a it's a big deal. It's been going for a few years now. We're very proud to be involved with that, and the. We had what did we have five hundred and eighty entries, was it something, um, like something like that? What I do know though, uh, there was over a hundred percent increase this year. Wow, that's massive. Yeah. So keep your eye on that because um, that'll be that'll be something hopefully that we'll continue to do. That would be yes. And on um, as soon as as it's announced, um, we will be posting that on our website. Absolutely. All right. So um, before we go to the final thing, which was well, obviously. This is the second final thing, the penultimate thing, is I just wanted you to chat briefly about the Orphan School uh, project that we've recently announced. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, we uh, just announced uh, applications being open for a residency at the Female Orphan School. Now, the, if you don't know, the Female Orphan School is in Parramatta. It's right on the edge of the river. And it's uh, this amazing colonial building. In fact, it's the first three-storey building um, in Australia. Mm. Um, and it's gone through various different iterations. It's, it was the female orphan school. Um, and an orphan in colonial times wasn't what, exactly what we uh, say an orphan is. It's an orphan is where today, you know, you've lost both parents. They're both not with us anymore. However, back then it was that a, a, a family might not be able to um, have enough money to keep you. So they put you in the orphan school. Mm. Um, so it's a, a child away from their families. And there hasn't the stories of the girls initially who were there because then it, after it became the female orphan school, it, it went to being a Protestant and uh, uh, for, for boys as well. It then uh, morphed into um, a, a place that was for people who weren't... Um, uh, couldn't fit into society and then it fell into disrepair and now it's part of the uh, Western Sydney University Parramatta campus. And the Whitlam Institute uh, is now there, which uh, holds the archives of Gough Whitlam. Right. Now, the stories of the inhabitants of the, uh, of the female orphan school haven't really been told. And for a number of years I've been wanting to... Uh, assist in actually bringing those stories to life Mm -hmm. so this is an opportunity four thousand dollars is attached for a research residency so uh to uh, come up come up with and pitch to us a project that you want to work on Mm -hmm. at the school you have access to access to various academics who have done some research into this the archives which are at the State Library Mm -hmm. and uh, some of the archives are within uh, Parramatta uh, Historical Records uh, and there's Parramatta Historical Society and it's to spend some time. It goes from a a period of residency between middle of February and May Mm -hmm. and but how that residency is in fact uh, constituted 
is up to you because what we're after is a terrifically strong proposal. Mm -hmm. It's a project that you really want to work on. For a creative non-fiction writer, really, isn't it? It's creative fiction and Mm non-fiction or poet. Okay. Um, And it's... um, There will be some interim um, outcomes, uh, some writing that's come out of here. We also want to know about your your long-term plans, Mm -hmm. um, where you eventually want to take this. Um, So it's really is fire us up with your passion and um, tell us about it. So when does that close? That's not far away, is it? No, that's only got a couple of weeks left. All the details are on our website. As always, on the website, westwords.com.au. And um, so... Like and subscribe this podcast, but then also get onto our website and subscribe to our newsletter and all that news will come directly to you. So that's going to be very exciting. Uh, The final thing we have for you today uh, is uh, a reading by a Western Sydney writer. Um, Tell us who it is, Michael. It's Tegan Bennett Daylight. Um, She's a writer, teacher and critic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her books include stellar award uh, awards, shortlisted books, um, she uh, and but this this is uh, a book from her life as a writer, a teacher, a critic, but as she puts it, first and foremost as a re- as a reader. And she in the in the book she describes how her reading has nourished her life and how life has informed her reading. Um, so, and just so that you know, that there's a number of bo- these sorts of books that are out there, but some of the how it's been reviewed already is um, people like Stephen Romy from the Weekend Australian, you, you can trust his um, insight because he's read an awful lot. Um, if you care about reading and writing, past and present and future, read this book from Justin Hyde in the Saturday paper. Just Justine Hyde in the Saturday paper. The details is a joyful and vital adventure alongside a sophisticated reader and a timely reminder of the critical role of art in turbulent times. It sounds like now. It sounds like well, now. It sounds have, like this year. Let's have a little listen to Tegan reading from some of her work. Hello. My name's Tegan Bennett Daylight, and this is my new book, The Details, a collection of essays about love, death, and reading. In this collection, I'm describing how my reading has nourished my life and how life has informed my reading. And I'm trying to show you that it's the small points of connection, the details that really matter in our lives. The collection is anchored by three essays called Detail 1, Detail 2, and Detail 3. Detail 3 is my favourite. And so that's the one I'm going to read to you from. My old friend Patrick sent me a scan of a page torn out of an exercise book, scribbled on in a loose, fast-moving hand, the hand of someone speaking to themselves, barely seeing the page. It's written by David McComb, the lead singer of Western Australian band The Triffids, about their 1986 album Born Sandy Devotional. Patrick and my husband Russell and I spend some of our idle time making lists and sending them to each other. When Prince died, we each made a list of our 10 favourite Prince songs and then Russell compiled them into a playlist. There were several overlaps, including Mountains from Parade and The Ballad of Dorothy Parker from Sign of the Times. We also make lists of our favourite albums, of our heroes and heroines and of our favourite books. 
It's a way of speaking to each other about a long shared history. The three of us have been together in one way or another for 30 or more years. Russell's favourite album is Prince's Parade. He has its bar barcode tattooed on his left bicep. Patrick has two favourites, Parade and Liberty Bell and the Black Diamond Express, the go-between's fourth album. My favourite album of all time, without hesitation, is Born Sandy Devotional. McComb writes, the theme will be unrequited love, but the language will reach way above and beyond that, very literary to prevent it being soppy, muscular, slow, droning, long background strings, deft, jazzy bass and drums. Why is it my favourite album? It's because it so willingly reaches for greatness. It is very literary. But if Robert Forster of The Go-Betweens was Charlotte Bronte, more intellectual, more controlled, then David McComb was Emily, and born Sandy Devotional, his Wuthering Heights, a masterpiece, both helpless and willed. The Triffids wrote landscapes of sounds, grand songs to accommodate the grand feelings and deep commanding vocals of its lead singer. They made a kind of operatic beauty out of simple things. They were prepared to find Western Australia, Perth, no less, a place of great passions. Born Sandy Devotional, with its mad, apparently meaningless title, says yes to art. I remember where I was when I learned that David McComb had died just before his 37th birthday. He'd had a, transplant, a heart transplant a few years earlier, having ruined his cardiovascular system with excessive drinking and drug taking. Finally, the heart rejected him or he it. Another note, this time from McComb's London Diaries, counts beers drunk on an ordinary night out. Personally, it was definitely a light night as far as imbibing goes. Nine or eleven pints, which is practically technically a night off, a night on the wagon per se. Despite the emerging narrative of disaster, I love this sentence. It's sprouting ugliness, all those self-conscious quotation marks. I love that pompous per se, which is only there for the sound of it. I love the showing off, the self-dramatising, the youthful use of words like imbibing, I love the sound practically technically like dice cracking together. The Triffids and David McComb in particular taught me that writing like this, being grandiose, showing off, indulging the self wasn't a crime or it wasn't if through the practice of it you could produce art. Annie Dillard says, one of the things I know about writing is this, spend it all, shoot it, play it, lose it all right away every time. These things fill from behind, from beneath, like well water. Anything you do not give freely and abundantly becomes lost to you. It was 1999 and I was driving somewhere in the dark, most likely to or from Sydney, from or to the Blue Mountains. The radio played Wide Open Road from Born Sandy Devotional. Tears coursed down my face. I felt the odd displaced grief of losing someone you never knew. Grief for McComb's loneliness, his or all of ours in the face of death. And grief because I'd never had the chance to say to him, music like yours allows art in others. It is a part of who I am. And because of that, David McComb still lives. In Moby Dick, Herman Melville writes, out of the trunks, the branches grow, out of them, the twigs. So in productive subjects, grow the chapters. It took me a long time to come to Moby Dick. 
I thought it would be a heavy tale of adventure, of men with fierce brows ploughing through wild seas. I thought the whole book would be like this, just the ceaseless male pursuit of a lumbering metaphor. There are plenty of fierce brows, as it turns out, and some wild seas, but there is also this. Steering northward from the Crozets, we fell in with vast meadows of Brit, the minute yellow substance upon which the right whale largely feeds. For leagues and leagues it undulated around us, so that we seemed to be sailing through boundless fields of ripe and golden wheat. On the second day, numbers of right whales were seen, who, secure from the attach of a sperm whaler like the Pequod, with open jaws swam sluggishly through the Brit, which, adhering to the fringing fibres of that wondrous Venetian blind in their mouths, was in that manner separated from the water that escaped at the lip. As morning mowers, who side by side slowly and seethingly advanced their scythes through the long wet grass of marshy means, even so these monsters swam, making strange grassy cutting sounds and leaving behind them endless swathes of blue upon the yellow sea. Herman Melville was reading the works of Shakespeare for the first time when he wrote Moby Dick. And these passages demonstrate that. My mother used to say that what she loved best about Shakespeare was that he didn't care about mixing his metaphors. He took arms against a sea of troubles. In Moby Dick, Melville was the same. He piled idea on idea, image on image. He reached into himself and threw out loop after loop of a ne seemingly never-ending rope of thought. It is distracting sometimes. That Venetian blind makes me forget the central image in these paragraphs, the mowers, the whales passing, mouths open through paddocks of brit or krill, cutting it down, mowing it. One's also distracted by the alliteration, the fringing fibres side by side, slowly and seethingly, the marshy means. But what riches of language dwell here? James Wood says we should not pity Melville, even though his masterpiece was initially met with almost total silence. For in writing Moby Dick, Melville wrote the novel that is every writer's dream of freedom. It is as though he painted a patch of sky for the imprisoned. In using words, so many of them, Melville scorned temperance. He spent it all, lost it all, right away. We should not think of what it must have been to write what he surely knew was his greatest book and to hear almost nothing back. Born Sandy Devotional was widely praised, although the critical success of the Triffords never did translate into significant international fame or serious money. But McComb too was painting his patch of sky. Any artist lucky enough to be doing their best work will tell you that the work is enough. So that was Tegan Bennett Daylight reading from her book The Details. And the sub the uh, strap line is or the subtitle is The Details on Love, Death and Reading by Tegan Bennett Daylight. And that's out from Simon and Schuster this year, I believe. It is. Michael, thank you so much for being uh, part of the podcast today. We'll do this again at some point, but we've probably got one more in us before we take a little bit of a much-earned break or well-earned break for uh, over the holiday break. But uh, thank you for your insights into all things Wasabi and Woody Allen and beyond. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Pleasure being here on the pod. And as we always say to uh, our listeners on this podcast, happy creating. Happy creating.